0: Uh, despite your fabulous uh, intro, Rosie, I'm not actually a poet, unless you count uh, singer-songwriting as, a poet, as poetry. I wouldn't, um, considering the august company we're in tonight, I wouldn't claim that. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna start my uh, 15 minutes uh, by quoting a poet, Bertolt Brecht. And Brecht said that art is not a mirror to reflect society, but a hammer with which to shape it. And I am from that generation who believed that culture, believed particularly that music could change the world. It's something that we, my generation, I was of the punk generation, we kind of inherited that idea from the uh, the 1960s generation. And they believed that music could change the world because music had changed their world culturally. The fusion between uh, uh, black music and white music in the United States of America in the mid-1950s had uh, created a a genuinely powerful cultural revolution. And those people who had been inspired by that in in the late 1950s, when they came of age, in the 1960s, they wanted to find out if music could generate a political revolution. And they had a pretty good go at it. They didn't, they didn't know whether it could or not. But they, they worked very hard for that. And that idea that music could change the world was still knocking around when me and my generation turned up um, in uh, in tight trousers with safety pins for our noses, uh, listening to The Clash in 1977. Now, The Clash definitely believed that music could change the world. I went to see them a few times. They believed it, and I'll be honest and tell you, back then, I kind of believed it as well, because you believed those kind of things when you were a teenager. And that belief uh, led me to follow them in 1978 to the first Rock Against Racism concert, uh, which was... uh, the culmination of a march from uh, Trafalgar Square to Victoria Park in Hackney. The Clash were performing, Tom Robinson was top of the bill, uh, X-ray specs were on. Uh, it was, it was a, a, f- a moment, a generational moment. And at the time, I was working, I was a bank messenger. If you can remember, some of you back before the days of email and uh, before the days of um, uh, mobile phones, Deals were done, things that had to be physically delivered, bonds and stuff like that. So I like this job because I didn't have to sit at a desk. I was out uh, on my feet running around the city of London for a merchant bank. And uh, me and my colleagues, other uh, bank messengers, we all sat around a photocopy machine. We were all rank Xerox key operators, <laughs> which in those days was a powerful position because it made, meant you could make your own fanzines which I used to do for my little band. I had inky fingers in those days. And my friends were all a little bit older than me. They were all in their 20s and late 20s, early 30s. And when people came to use our our machine, they were mostly secretaries and uh, people, low people in the, the pecking order of the office. And my colleagues were casually sexist. They were casually racist. They were casually homophobic. And I know I might have been embarrassed sometimes, I never really said anything because I was like the office junior and I just wanted to be part of things. And I never, said, I never said a word. And then I went on this Rock Against Racism march. And when we got to the park, when we got to Victoria Park in Hackney, there were 100,000 kids just like me, predominantly white, predominantly teenage, predominantly Londoners. And they were there to... to hear this punk music, but also to take a stand against the National Front who'd come third in the the GLC elections in 1974 and were, looked like they were, they were coming to power. And it was, it was an incredible afternoon. I, uh, Tom Robinson, uh, who's now the DJ at Six Music, he had a band at the time, TRB, Tom Robinson Band. And his big song was Sing If You're Glad to be Gay. And when he sang that song, A very brave song to sing in 1978, when you can still get your head kicked in for being gay. When he sang that song, a lot of the men around me and my mates started kissing each other on the lips. Now, I was 19. I'd never met an out gay man. I'm sure I'd met a gay man, but I'd never met an out gay man. And I couldn't understand what was happening. What was happening was we'd marched in front of this banner that said, gays against the Nazis. (laughs) we were, we were anti-fascist, gay central. But to see these men, my first thought was, why are these guys that Rock Against Racism? This is about anti-racism, what are they doing here? It didn't take me long that afternoon to twig that the fascists were against any of us who were any different kind. That the, the struggle that we were involved in here wasn't just about anti-racism, it was about anti-discrimination. The penny dropped real, real big time for me. The Clash were pretty good. They weren't great. I've seen them better times. (laughs) Tom Robinson was pretty good. Uh, X-ray specs were really, really good. But something happened that Sunday afternoon. I went home on the tube to my mum's house. Being Sunday, she made liver and bacon like she always did. Barking station was there. The house was there. The world hadn't changed. But my perspective of the world had changed to such an extent that I don't think I'll be standing there tonight talking to you were it not for what happened that afternoon. And when I went into work on Monday, I knew that I was different from these assholes that I was working with. Because I knew that my generation were going to define themselves in opposition to discrimination of all kinds. And I knew that because I'd seen my generation in that park. We were gonna be the generation of rock against racism, of artists against apartheid, of free Nelson Mandela. That was gonna be our Vietnam War, that was gonna be our CND. That was how we were gonna identify myself. And so from that day on, I started speaking up when I could, when I felt brave enough, when I had the courage and my convictions. And I made sure I watched my language as well. And what's crucial about this, and something that has informed my job over the last 35 years as a protest singer, is that it wasn't The Clash that changed my perspective. It wasn't Tom Robinson that made that difference to me. What gave me the courage of my convictions was being in that audience, was being part of that expression of solidarity for the idea that was being expressed by the the event as it was. No one song, Made me go back to work and start taking on these guys I work with. No one band came forth to give me that idea. It was something that came from the audience. And it's a, it's a very, very powerful idea. Now, over time, I've come to understand that actually music can't change the world. People hate me saying this. People get really, really pissed off with me saying this. But it is a fact. And let me tell you, I'm Billy Bragg. If anyone should know if it does or not, I should fucking well know, okay? (laughs) Okay? Okay. But the problem is the problem that people have is they know that music has a power because they feel it themselves. I felt it that day in Victoria Park, what that power is. But it's not the power to change the world, music has no agency. Singing songs alone don't mean shit, really, when it comes down to it. Something else happens there. And the, the, the key thing to me is the difference between what the Clash said and what the 60s generation said about change and what Brecht said about shape. About shaping the world. How music, poetry, all art can play a role in shaping the world. Obviously, with regard to music, it had a vanguard role in youth culture in the 60s and the 70s, and the whole latter part of the 20th century. Music was our social medium. It was how we spoke to one another. It was how we spoke to our parents' generation. Music told you our address. Music told you who to hang out with, who not to hang out with. It's, you know, It was everything that Facebook and Twitter and all those other things are now. It was absolutely central to our sense, and because of that, It had to encapsulate everything within youth culture. Everything. Now, you know, that's changed. Music no longer has that role. When I was 19 and angry about the world, there was only one medium available to me. Only one medium. That was to learn to play the guitar, write songs and do gigs. That was the only way I could get a a platform to express my view. Now, if you're 19 and angry, and you've got a twitchy thumb, you can get on social media, talk about everything any day, feel you're part of the debate. So music has lost that vanguard role, but it still has a crucial role to play in shaping our culture, our political culture as well. How does it work? How does does that magic work? Well, I'm of the opinion that the The true enemy of all of us who want to make the world a better place is not actually capitalism or conservatism. It's actually cynicism that is our greatest enemy. And not the cynicism of the Daily Mail, not the cynicism of Rupert Murdoch, but our own cynicism, those of us who wish the world to be a better place. Our own feeling that no one gives a shit about this stuff anymore. Our own fear that nothing will ever change. Our own worry that we're wasting our time. And when I feel like that, I'm in a very privileged position because when I feel like that, I come out here in the dark with you lot, I sing my songs, everyone claps, and I don't feel half so bad about it anymore. <laughs> I come off stage, everyone's sung, there is power in the union. I come off stage, fired up. However else I went on stage feeling before, I come off stage, my activism is 100% charged all the way over. And I understand now that my job is to make my audience feel the same, to make my audience go home with their activism 100% charge. Because fundamentally, activism is the only real antidote to cynicism. It's the only real way by engaging to kick your cynicism to the curb where it belongs. We're all prone to it, everybody, all of us. It's what we can do to overcome it. And music has a role in helping you to overcome it. Because I understand now that my role is to make everybody go home feeling like I feel, fired up. Not because of what I've said and because of what I've sung from the stage. Part of it, that, yes. But really, to take that solidarity that there is in song, that's in the room. There's 500 people in that room. The 100,000 kids in Victoria Park in Hackney. That sense that there are people who give a shit about this stuff, that you're not the only person in the world who cares about this, that there are other people. and My job is to use my music to inspire people in, in that way, to offer my perspective, to offer them some clues on how they can engage. Because the only people in the fabulous exchange of ideas that we have in a situation like this, or a gig, who does actually have the power to change the world the audience. Always was, always has been, always will be. As artists, we don't have agency. We don't have the ability to change things. That takes organisation, that takes dedication, that takes collective action. And uh, a bunch of pop stars can do good stuff, they can do good stuff, but fundamentally it takes a movement to bring about real social change. So what role do we play in that? Well, to go back to what Brecht said, anybody who's ever tried to shape something with a hammer will know that you need a sturdy anvil in order to do that. And I would argue that the anvil that we use in art, because, you know, all of us have our own hammer in which we... uh, which we choose uh, to shape the world. But the anvil on which we try to do it is accountability. We have the ability for our art, if we choose to, to call out injustice, to point out hypocrisy, to challenge the powerful. Not to lead, not to offer answers, but simply to try by offering our own perspective on the way things are. Crucially, if you're going to make art a perspective that you don't see expressed anywhere else, our job is not to come up with the answers. It's to be able to work out where the bloody hell we are on the map. Because if you don't know where you are on a map, you know it's a worthless piece of paper really you've got to first know where you are and that's what you want to do with the audience you want to send the audience home with a sense of of where they are and I believe that accountability is absolutely uh, crucial to that there's a statue outside of the BBC in London of George Orwell Uh, it's the 70th anniversary of his death this year Uh, he worked for the BBC and they've they've put on the wall behind him a quote from the, from the uh, introduction to Animal Farm, if liberty means anything, it means the right to pe- tell people what they don't want to hear. That's not liberty. That's license. Because people don't want to hear that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Every time I walk past that quote, it does my, it does my head in, you know, because fundamentally the right to say whatever you want to say that is not liberty. to be able to say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it to whoever you want to say it to with no comeback that's not liberty that's Donald Trump's Twitter feed (laughs) and anyone who's seen that will understand that liberty and freedom are not the same thing to truly be free we need also not only to have liberty the right to express your opinion we also need equality the reciprocal respect of the other person's rights their fundamental rights, not just to an opinion, but to everything that they have under the, the, the idea of human rights. Because without that, without liberty, without equality, is just privilege. But liberty without accountability is the most dangerous of all freedoms, and that is impunity. And we sadly live in a time where men with impunity are in power, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi in China. You know, Johnson says a lot of glib things, but the most insidious thing I think he ever said was, I'm pro-having my cake and pro-eating it. Because that is the slogan of a man who believes he has a right to, first to make the rules and then to break them whenever he wants to. And that's why I think it's crucial that we understand as a community we need to have a baseline if we're going to go forward not just liberty but equality and most fundamentally of all accountability and one last thing if you ever live long enough to see them put up a statue to me somewhere (laughs) don't let them put up i don't want to change the world behind it thanks